The Colorado Equals Security Podcast is your local source for regional security news, local events, and interviews with key individuals in the region. Now, here are your hosts, Rob Reck and Alex Wood. Welcome to Colorado Equals Security. This is your newscast for episode 210 for the week of May 10th, uh, 2021. Alex, I almost said 2020. It's It's been sticking with me so far. <laughs> I almost said 2020. Well, it is basically like, you know, an extension of 2020, so... Uh, so Alex, uh, this, Again, I can see some, why you might be confused. We got some good news here that Colorado, we've uh, we got over 40%, and I think it's coming up to 50% now of folks who are fully vaccinated and uh, well over 60%, about two thirds of people um, who have at least got one of their two shots. So we're on the way to, to getting uh, inoculated here as a state. Yeah, that is pretty cool. And uh, there's rumor that this coming week, they're going to uh, lower the age for vaccination, I think, for the Pfizer shot, maybe even down to 12. So that could even add more people to that uh, that number that we have vaccinated already. I'll tell you, my 13-year-old son is very eagerly watching this story and super excited. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I have uh, a 14 and a 16-year-old. My 16-year-old has had one shot, and uh, it's coming up soon on a second. And then, uh, you know, as soon as we can for my younger one, we'll do that as well. So is, is he stuff. is he excited or is he uh, reluctantly being pushed into vaccination? Um, I don't think that he really cares about the benefits of it, other than the fact that uh, both of my kids from time to time have been quarantined at school. Uh, neither of them have had COVID, but they've been quarantined because, because of close contact, things like that. And um, they're not fond of that. So uh, I think that they're excited to have the possibility of not needing to be quarantined anymore. All right. Well, let's jump into some housekeeping. So, let's run through them fast this week. I'm, I'm feeling feeling uh, some, some fire. I'm going to go quick. Uh, we have a Slack channel. All right, do it. 1,900 people. We did change Slack a little bit. Um, rather than having a link that anyone can just join, uh, we, we're now asking for folks to just let us know that you're a human who either lives or works in Colorado and has an interest in security. We're trying to make sure we don't get too many bots in the channel. Um, we also have a mailing list you can join uh, on colorado-security.com. So go out there and, and get... Uh, signed up so you can get a, an email in your inbox each week. Uh, we would love it if you would rate us and subscribe on your favorite podcatcher to help us get new listeners. Uh, you can also tell a friend about Colorado Equals Security. And if you're uh, feeling frisky, you can join our Patreon campaign and, and throw a couple bucks our way to help support the costs of everything that we do. And, and Rob, we do, that was the announcements. We do definitely appreciate all of our current patrons. Thanks so much for all you guys do. Uh, it's, it really does help. All right. Uh, with that, let's jump into the news. Uh, Alex, we've talked, I feel like maybe a dozen times or so over the years, we've talked about different companies here in Colorado that are going to go on Shark Tank and um, we've had varying degrees of success. Well, we have a new company that I, at least that's new to me that's going to be on Shark Tank coming up soon. And they're all about making beer at home. I thought, Rob, you were going to say we, we've talked at least a dozen times about beer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, you're talking about Shark Tank. Yeah. Um, so yes, uh, there is a, a Colorado company called uh, Beer Maker, uh, take away some of the vowels there to spell the actual company. And they came up with this contraption for you to brew beer at home in a much simpler way. Looks sort of like a bread maker, but you know, sits on your counter and makes beer. Yeah, this is pretty exciting stuff. You know, I, I think uh, we, we all know uh, lots of folks who, who really enjoy making beer. Um, and, and now it's going to be much more approachable. I, I think it, it has generally been a very time consuming and, and, and maybe a little hard to, 
to understand a hobby that that now um, that they're going to have accessible to a lot more people. And I think the price for it was just a couple hundred bucks, right? Uh, yeah, I think uh, it is a reasonable price. I don't remember off the top of my head what it was. Um, but yeah, so they, they got some funding through, Kick, uh, through Kickstarter and uh, went on um, on Shark Tank. And so, you know, you can get one of these, put it on your counter and uh, have people ask you what it's all about. And then say, look, I can pour you a beer from this. Yeah, I'm just looking at it there. Uh at their their Kickstarter website and it's um 300 uh 350 bucks basically to get uh one of their packages one of their systems all in so you can get going with it. Yeah, you know, um I personally have never brewed my own beer. I'm sure it is fulfilling, but I would much rather just, you know, go down to a local brewery and and get a pint or two and uh, let the people who are good at doing that do it. So well, I want uh, everyone uh, who I know to brew their own beer. So, because everyone, right. everyone who brews their own beer wants people to, to drink it. So, you know, uh, anyone who I know who's going to brew beer, you know, I'll come over and I'll, I'll give it a try. I'll let you know what I think. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm down as well. If, if you have any time where you want me to come taste beer, uh, just let me know. I'll be there. So, all right. Uh, moving on to our next story. Uh, this is about the uh, Gaylord of the Rockies property out by the airport. Um, a, a new buyer has snapped up the remaining $210 million stake in that property uh, to help convert it into the Opryland of the West. Rob, what does that mean? So, so Ryman is the name of the company, and they were already really involved with the project. They, uh, they owned, I think, 35% of the company um, since 2016, and, and they basically bought uh, the majority of the company now. And really what they're saying is they expect this to be like the convention center, the, the non um, the non-gaming, so not Vegas, right? The non-gaming convention center of the West. Yeah, you, maybe you think of Orlando as being the non-gaming convention center of the East. Uh, and they expect this this new facility to be the place for the West and uh, and really ex- plan to expand to get a lot bigger uh, and bring in a lot new of new trade shows as well. Yeah, so there were already plans for a an additional uh, three hundred room expansion that had been announced prior to COVID and then got put on hold. So uh, they're looking forward to starting that. But then they also have some land around the the current uh, Gaylord that they can then use potentially for you know other adjacent hotels or you know maybe a larger convention area or or whatever it might be. So um, I, I think that that's pretty cool. Um, you know the the convention center downtown is awesome, but it, it's obviously landlocked. So it's, it's not going to get any bigger than it already is. Uh, so I can definitely see, uh, you know, if you have the space out there by the airport, the ability to make an, an even larger convention center and, you know, attract some more shows there. All right. Good stuff. Uh, our next story here is, is, a. Uh... It basically a loud and clear message coming from the downtown Denver partnership and some other groups that are teaming up to say uh, it's time to get back to the office in Denver. Uh, they basically saying, hey, COVID's uh, just about over. It's time for us to to really start filling up those offices in downtown Denver. Yeah, so this program is called Denver's Ready. And it's, uh, as you mentioned, a, a campaign by the, the downtown Denver partnership and, and some other groups. And, uh, you know, one of the things that they're doing is they are they're offering uh, resources for uh, for companies so that they can help open back up appropriately. Uh, there's going to be uh, testing and vaccination uh, facilities downtown that are available. Uh, really, just you know, more incentive to get people to come back to the office uh, in downtown Denver. You know, I, I my office is downtown, and I've been down there a few times uh, throughout COVID, and it, it you know it's been a ghost town for the most part. So, um, you know, all the restaurants and other uh, entertainment things 
that are down there. I think they're really looking forward to people coming back. They do say, you know, they have some stats in here, which, you know, I always love gravitating toward the stats. <clears throat> they say that uh, last year during the pandemic, there was about 50,000 daily visitors downtown. Um, in January of this year, there was fewer than 100,000 visitors. And, and now we see fewer than 150,000 daily visitors. Um, so definitely, you know, tripled from during the, the height of the pandemic. Um, what they don't say here, and what I really wish they would say was what normal visitors look like, you know, like maybe January right. of 2020. Um, but, you know, expectation that it's going to be a lot higher. It does feel, you know, relatively empty downtown, but not nearly as bad as it did back in the last, last fall. That said, um, I'll say while the streets might feel empty in terms of walking around, the drive downtown does not feel empty. I, I'm, I'm oh, a man. little concerned that right now I feel like traffic is just as bad as it was pre-pandemic. Uh, if this is, you know, without all those cars on the road, what is it going to look like when everyone starts going back to the office? I know. I, I don't know if it's quite as bad, but it's pretty bad. Um, this is a Saturday when we're recording this and we had to drive uh, from Littleton to Westminster slash Broomfield for a, a uh, one of my kids' basketball games today. And, you know, all the way through the I-25 corridor through downtown was stop and go traffic in the middle of the afternoon on Saturday. So that, uh, no fun with all the traffic. Um, you know, maybe as things uh, do begin to open up, people will start taking public transit again more and, and maybe that will help. But uh, yeah, we'll have to see. Yeah, well, Alex, I, I have an answer for why it was so bad today. I was also on the road on 25 going downtown. So uh, that was the reason you, the two you of us. Um, yeah, we did it. Yeah. Well, well done. Uh, all right. Moving on to the next story. Um, there is a new venture capital firm that is in town uh, looking to help pre-seed or pre-seed companies and uh, in robotics, AI voice and synthetic biology areas. Uh, B partners is the name of the fund. Uh, and they are, are moving some of their partners here to help, uh, early stage companies in Colorado get started. Yeah, I, I had never heard of B Partners, um, but uh, they've been around since about 2009, and they they do specialize in um, technology areas such as robotics, AI, voice, and synthetic biology. And then you know they they did use that that term precede, um, and and then they are kind enough to define it here in the article. And what what this means to to B Partners is that they are pre product pre revenue. Um, pre-product market fit, um, and, and really they're just an inception level company. And I'll say that's that's I think that's relatively rare. Most investors I know, and certainly the ones we've talked to on the show, um, while they they might not be looking for you to to be scaling and getting big, they they want to see that you've got a couple customers who are using the the product successfully. And it sounds like that's not the model here for B Partners. Yeah, I, I think the idea though is that if you can get in early enough, uh, you can get a fairly cheap. Uh, piece of the company for, you know, a, a decent amount of the company. Um, and, you know, if they do well, then you have a, a good chance on a very large return. So you can potentially have uh, a number of failing ventures and, you know, a few good ones and still make some good money. So uh, also, Rob, you may not have heard of B Partners because uh, they are a four-person team. So uh, not a very large uh, investment firm, but that also means that 25% of the company is now Denver-based. That's pretty good stuff. All right, moving forward, we have a, an article. Um, for, it's the, the headline is, I'm a former hacker, and I believe the current round of digital vaccine passports pose real security risks, but a safe, effective vaccine passport is possible. 
So the headline rolls off the tongue. Um, and, uh, and it's written by a former hacker who's also a former podcast guest on our show, Mary Ritz. Yeah, Mary, you know, who uh, did an interview series a couple of years ago. Uh, I used to work with Mary, you know, back in the day, and uh, she wrote this opinion piece, um, good piece by her, talking about how, you know, partially that it's hard to tell if one of these uh, vaccine passport apps is good or not, because um, there's there are no standards, uh, there's no real direction on, um, you know, which ones you should use or any of that kind of thing. So, you know, you could go out there and and use one, and it could be a, uh, you know, a shoddy uh, one with one with shoddy security, one that's you know trying to steal your information, or it could be something legit. But it, you know, it's just hard to tell at this point. Yeah, and you know, this is something that you know, Ping Identity. If you remember, that they had a press release about Ping releasing a a passport, a vaccine passport. So something I've looked at a lot while I was at Ping. Um, I agree with you that there is no standard for what safe looks like, um, but I will suggest, you know, when you're talking about HIPAA data and connecting with healthcare organizations, there is an awful lot of expectation of security here. Um, and, you know, companies like those big healthcare providers and big insurance providers who would be a part of this, they are driving folks to think about it. That doesn't mean that it's easy. It doesn't mean it's going to come right off the bat, but I'd say it's, it's certainly not um, being totally ignored. And it certainly wasn't in our project. Yeah. And I mean, my other thing with this at this point is um, I'm not sure yet of the the necessity for vaccine passports. Um, you know, well, I think we do need to, to probably prove it at different points that we have been vaccinated. Um, you know, what is the bar? You know, me showing a picture of my vaccine card, is that good enough? Um, or do I need a, you know, some sort of digital equivalent that actually can, um, you know, accurately verify that I am that person and that I have been vaccinated. I, I just don't know yet. So. Right. Are we trusting the biometrics built into the phone and the fact that the, the, the right person is, is the one pushing their fingerprint on it, right? Like it's, right. it's definitely challenging. Uh, and, sure. and the important thing I wanted to point out in here, uh, Mary uses uh, the word myriad and she says, uh, I'll find the word here. Uh, but she, she says, there are myriad things we do. And, and I wanted to get your take. Is it a myriad of things we do or myriad things we do that you prefer, Alex? Ooh, um, I think I, um, I, I love Mary, but I probably would say a myriad of things. Um, I, I don't know the, the actual correct English there, but uh, personally, I probably would add an of there. Well, the, the answer is they're both acceptable. Um, I, oh, hey. I, I am... Uh, I am just one who who really prefers a myriad of, and and I th I don't know where that comes from, but Mary, thank you for exposing me to the the other way and, um, and keeping me on my toes. Well, uh, I am someone that prefers the Oxford comma, so there we go. Good stuff. All right, thank you, thank you, Alex. We can we can move on. <laughs> All right, uh, next story. Uh, we have some some exciting award news here. Uh, Mark Weatherford, friend of the show. Um, we have uh, interviewed Mark, and he's been on the show before. Uh, he has been inducted into the CSO Hall of Fame. So, congratulations to Mark! Yeah, this is this is really cool. Mark, uh, he's had just a fantastic career, um, and certainly not starting with, but you know, I think starting in in a big way in Colorado with you know maybe was it twenty or so years ago, he was the the chief information security officer for the state of Colorado. Um, yeah. After that, he he was the CSO for the state of California. Um, he worked um, with, with DHS. Uh, he also has worked with different startups, and he's also been the CISO for Booking, um, which is a you know a very large um, 
uh, travel travel company. He's done a lot of really cool stuff. He's been a big part of um, the security scene, not only in Colorado, but nationwide. And, and certainly uh, awesome to see him recognized like this. Yeah, uh, definitely uh, deserving. And congratulations to Mark. Um, couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Good stuff. All right. Next, we have a blog post from Ping Identity. And this is really celebrating World Password Day. World Password Day was May the 6th. Um, not quite May the 4th, but May the 6th. And, and the reason is because it's the first Thursday of May that gets celebrated. Um, and, and it was really created you know, back in 2013 as a way to help people um, make their passwords more secure and to, you know, get practices like change your password and don't reuse between sites. Uh, but Ping has some advice this year about maybe some changes that are needed. Yeah. So um, I think the idea here is that you know, maybe we need to really think about uh, exactly what we're talking about on World Password Day, right? So um, while we would love everyone to have great uh, password hygiene, maybe we can look to be even better than that and try and make this, instead of World Password Day, World Passwordless Day, uh, moving towards our, our new passwordless future. Yeah, they have a bunch of, a bunch of uh, quotes in here and stats in here. Um, you know, that several folks at Ping talking about why it is so hard to get off of passwords. I think the root of it is just, you know, we've been doing it for 30 years. Uh, it's built into all the applications. You know, anytime there's, you know, inertia for uh, for a certain way, you know, you have to have a really compelling reason to make a change. And, you know, we just haven't found that really compelling reason yet. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to this because, you know, I personally can't stand having to change passwords and uh, the, the faster we can get to world to password lists across the world, I think the better, the happier we're all going to be and the more secure we're all going to be. Yeah. So Rob, I think that the bigger question is uh, which goes away first, the password or uh, the social security number as uh, everyone's unique identifier. Um, I think the password probably goes first. I'm, yeah, I, I think I'd go with password for too. You know, getting a federal change, man, that's 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 awfully difficult. That's awfully difficult. Yeah. All right. Uh, moving on. Uh, next, we have a blog post from Red Canary. Uh, this was released on May the fourth, so it is uh, Star Wars related. Uh, the blog post is called "Our Clone Wars: Transferring Leverage in a Ransomware Attack." So this blog is talking about uh, ways that you can potentially uh, detect a ransomware attack in process by some of the tools that are being used by the attackers. Yeah, I think they're they're really focusing on what they're calling the double extortion scheme, um, and and what that means. And we've all heard of this. Well, at least I know many of us have heard of this. Where not only are they saying, "Hey, we're going to delete your data if you don't pay for it," uh, they're also now saying, "And by the way, if you don't pay us, we're going to leak your data." So you didn't just lose it; you also had um, you also had the embarrassment of a, of a public exposure of data that was stolen from you. Um, so the, one of the interesting parts of this article to me is uh, there's, you know, there's different signatures of an attack that's doing that double extortion. You know, with a normal ransomware, there's going to be encryption local on the file system, but there's probably not a lot of um, exfiltration. Well, you're going to see exfiltration here with a double the uh, double extortion scheme. And that's what they're really honing in on is looking for tools that can help you identify when that data is leaving um, and in doing so in a way that's customized to your environment. Yeah, I mean, and, and some of the tools that they mention are uh, the, the mega file transfer uh, software, as well as our clone, which is in part of the title here, um, you know, all which are used to uh, exfiltrate that data so that you can be uh, ransomed and, and leveraged in that way. 
you know, I would suggest that it's it doesn't tough. really matter what tools we're talking about. What matters is knowing within your own environment what your normal file transfer tools are and, and looking from deviations from that baseline. You know, if we always use uh, you know, Google Drive and all of a sudden we see someone uploading things to Dropbox, okay, that should be suspicious. And, you know, it could be suspicious for different reasons, but that's, that's kind of the, the most important element here, understanding what normal looks like. And, and then they go into how you can actually detect you know, and within those things that are not normal, you know, what's the most high risk and, high, and risky looking stuff. Yeah, and this is another one of those in-depth sort of technical, very long Red Canary blogs that we we love. All right, uh, last story this week is uh, yet another blog, and this one's by Logrhythm. Uh, every security incident has a story. You know, this is one that as you get into it, you realize it's kind of a sales pitch for for Logrhythm and, and talking about how they differentiate what they do in their sim versus what their competitors do. Yeah, and I mean, I think the bottom line here is that. Uh, you know, they're talking about how you can uh, use the data that is in logarithm or anything else, you know, to, to really tell a story. And that story in this case is about, uh, you know, some security event that is going on, um, you know, using the, uh, the uh, machine learning and data intelligence that you have uh, in these tools and, um, you know, hopefully getting more context around the things that are going on to help, you know, uh, fill out that story so that you can uh, really figure out what's going on in terms of investigating security incidents. Good stuff. I'd love to see the uh, the local company put some interesting inf content out there. So good job, Red Canary. All right, that is it for news. Like I mentioned, let's go ahead and swing over to the Slack message of the week. Um, start off by once again, thanking our our good friend, Andre Gata, who's been um, such a loyal supporter of the show and of the, the movement. Um, each week we get to identify one person who contributed to the the conversation in Slack and and give that person a free item from the Colorado Equal Security Slack store. So Alex, who gets it this week? Yeah, uh, this week's winner is The Tick. Um, and uh, the the reason that the, the Tick won is, uh, this was part of the conversation that we had. It was a very long conversation um, about whether or not we should uh, make the Slack channel invite only. Um, the Tick is someone that is um, you know, came to the Colorado Equal Security community um, by hearing about how great the Colorado uh, security community was and wanted to know more about it and uh, mentioned that because of uh, joining up with this community, he is now uh, thinking about relocating to Colorado um, simply because of uh, all the good stuff that we have going on here. So I thought that was pretty cool. Congratulations to Mr. Tick. Uh, you will get to pick one item from the store up, up to $25 in value, and we'll get that email over to him to, to make his claim. And of course, thanks to Andre again for, for doing this for us. I think you mean that is Mr. The Tick. Mr. The Tick. Um, yes. Uh, all, all right. right. Uh, Go ahead. Let's Go ahead, jump Alex. over to events. Uh, as you all know, we have an event calendar on the website, and uh, there's lots and lots of events out there. Uh, we are going to talk about the ones that are coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, in addition to that, I wanted to make a quick mention. Uh, registration is open for the Rocky Mountain Information Security Conference. So go out and register for that. We've got a great agenda. Um, I think that uh, that people should all uh, come out and, and be part of the virtual conference this year. Uh, go to rmisc.org for more information on that. Uh, first event that we have uh, for this week, on May 12th, ISSA Denver is doing their May chapter meeting. On the 13th, we've got two events. First, we have Denver ISSA's Women in Security Special Interest Group. They're doing their May, 
meeting. And also on the 13th, ACES, the local physical security group, is doing crime prevention through environmental design to discourage vagrancy. On the 14th, uh, Dustin Lair's uh, product application security group is talking about security champion programs. Are they necessary? What works and what doesn't? On the 18th, we got a couple events there. We've got ISSA Colorado Springs doing their May meeting, and we have the Cloud Security Alliance doing their May meeting as well, both virtual. OWASP is doing their May meeting, and this is a combination of the Denver and Boulder chapters on May 19th. On the 20th, ISACA Denver has their May chapter meeting. And rounding out the next two weeks, on the 22nd, ISSA Colorado Springs is doing one of their mini seminars. All right, let's jump over to jobs. Um, this first one, uh, you know, I picked it because I loved the name. I'd never heard of this company. We've got Wowza Media, Media Systems hiring an information security manager. Wowza. Uh, I might have to apply for that job, Rob, just because of the name of the company. Uh, Cognizant is looking for an associate director of cybersecurity incident, re excuse me, incident response, and this can be 100% remote. Uh, Dish Network is hiring an information security business partner. Coalfire is looking for a senior director and associate general counsel of product. This is an interesting one. Metro State is hiring a lead IT security analyst. That is an interesting one. Uh, Dice, the job site, is looking for an identity and access management specialist. Red Canary is hiring a senior information security specialist. Uh, I have a little bit of insight on this one. This is not a, a member of the security team. It's actually a member of the communities team. Um, and, and this person will really, you know, we just talked about one of the blog posts from Red Canary we love so much. Um, this gets, it really helps contribute to that and, and builds that um, community awareness that we have uh, for that company. Uh, next, Common, Common Spirit, Spirit Help. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Alex. Common Spirit Health is a little delay today, so we're compliance. We're talking over each other, left and, and right. It's opportunity. Keep keep talking. <laughs> keep talking. Do it. <laughs> this, this is this is the joy of the pandemic and getting to do this remotely. We're we're having a good time. Uh, what I, what I was saying was, uh, Common Spirit Health is hiring an IT security compliance analyst, which can be a remote opportunity. Motive Care is looking for an IT governance analyst. And finally, Global Medical Response is hiring a risk and safety analyst. Uh, that takes us to the end of the news. Mm -hmm. We do have a feature interview this week. Um, Douglas Brush sat down with David Staus. We've had David on the show before. David is a, a local attorney focused on privacy and security. Yeah, I think this is the first time we've had uh, Doug do a guest interview for us. Yeah, we'll see how he does. He has his own podcast doing interviews, so I expect he might, he might know what he's doing a little bit. Eh. We'll find out. I'm looking forward to it. Though. All right. Well, that's it. Everyone have a great week and we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks, Rob. This is Brian Becker, Director of Information Security at Cronky Sports and Entertainment. You're listening to Colorado Equal Security for Colorado Security Professionals by Colorado Security Professionals. Hello and welcome to the interview portion of Colorado Equal Security. I'm your guest interviewer for this week. And this week, we're speaking to David Staus. David is a partner at the law firm Hush Blackwell here in Denver, Colorado. David leads clients through complex litigation, privacy, and cybersecurity matters. 
He regularly assists clients in preparing and responding to data security incidents, including managing multi-state breach notifications. He is recognized as a top author in the area of privacy law and is the editor of Hush Blackwell's Biteback blog. In 2018, he assisted in drafting Colorado cybersecurity legislation, serving as the outside subject matter expert for the Colorado Attorney General's Office. He's a frequent author and speaker on privacy and cybersecurity, serving as a co-chair of One Trust Privacy Connects Denver Chapter. David also has several certifications from the International Association of Privacy Professionals, or IAPP. David has been on the Colorado Equal Security Podcast before, but it's been about three years. Since that time, there has been a ton of changes to data privacy regulation, both here in the United States, as well as internationally. We're gonna dive deep into these subjects. We're gonna also use a lot of terminology and maybe some acronyms you are not familiar with. If you don't understand something, please do not hesitate to reach out to myself or David so we can provide you additional resources on what some of these terms mean and how they apply to your data privacy and data security programs. Now let's get to it. David, hello. Thanks for joining me on the Colorado Equal Security Podcast. That's weird for me to say. I, have to, I feel like I'm cheating on my own podcast, but I was, uh, but I was, I'm happy to do this with you today. How are you? Well, I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's nice to uh, to be back. I mean, um, it's been a while since I've been on the Colorado Equal Security Podcast, but I do appreciate the opportunity to come back and chat with you guys. Yeah, no, it's funny. It's we were it was talking to Alex Rob about. It. I mean, this is it's, it's got to be three or four years ago since you last been on and i have to imagine <laughs> the reason we all kind of said hey we, we got to get an update on what's going on in privacy but i have to imagine quite a bit has changed both nationally internationally in and in different states but uh you know even before we were we were hitting we hit record we were talking about the overall maturity of it from you know kind of a holistic perspective in the united states kind of walk us through to to where we are now you know what where are we as the United States as far as addressing things like uh, data privacy is as far as consumer and, and other types of private information? Yeah, uh, I mean, in a word, behind, <laughs> right? I think, um, you know, where do we stand, right? So we have and have had, you know, sector-specific federal laws for a number of years. Those would be the things you think about, like HIPAA and GLBA and FERPA, those types of laws. Um, on, you know, there is no national breach notification statute. There's obviously 50 state breach notification statutes. I think everybody is familiar with those. Um, and then, you know, to your question though, you know, consumer privacy legislation, we are, they're still sitting here in April, 2021. There's only one, uh, broad privacy law, which is California's, the California Consumer Privacy Act. Uh, your listeners who track this will know that in, that that law went into effect, and then in November of this past year, California voters went to the ballot, and they passed uh, a ballot measure, Proposition 24, which substantially revised the California Consumer Privacy Act, and that bill is uh, called the, or I say the ballot measure is called the California, the CPRA. Uh, acronyms are obviously incredibly important in privacy <laughs> law. We live and die by our acronyms, so um, we'll be calling that the CPRA instead of the CCPA. That goes into effect for the most part in uh, January 1st, 2023. Uh, it will be incredibly complicated, that rollout. Um, I can get into it in a second. Let me just pause and say um, we are in the midst right now as we sit here in April 2021 of a number of state legislatures considering uh, similar type legislation. 
we have seen since January, we've seen 26 states uh, where legislation is proposed. Uh, the most notable one is Virginia. Virginia passed a law, uh, the, the VCDPA, again, um, acronyms important, the Virginia Consumer Data Protection Act there. Um, a much different law than California's, a much more business friendly law than, than California's, it, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the prevailing wisdom is it was essentially Amazon and Microsoft that, that wrote that law. Um, so those are the two laws that we have right now. Like I said, there are a number of states considering legislation. Um, bills have been raised. Bills have failed. Um, it remains to be seen whether some other state joins, this, uh, joins in this year. Uh, but we sit here with two. Um, and the Virginia law will also go into effect January 1st, 2023. To tease it out and get back to the CPRA, what's going to happen there is um, it created a new agency, uh, the CPPA, again, acronyms, the California Privacy Protection Agency. So that's been created in uh, mid-March. The five commissioners were appointed uh, by the governor and then other legislative members appointed commissioners. And now those commissioners need to go about creating that agency uh, from the ground up, and they will need to publish starting in, I believe it's going to be July, they will need to go through the process of drafting regulations to, inf uh, to, to flesh out the CPRA. And to kind of give you a frame of reference on that, the CCPA, the law that's already into effect now, had seven topics of regulation. The CPRA will have those same seven topics. There will be modifications to those seven, and then it will add 15 other topics to regulations. So you have 21 total topics. Um, I have a you know, three ring binder that's double sided. That is, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages long of all of the stuff that went into making the regulations for the CCPA. And this is going to be three times longer, uh, three times uh, the, the amount of regulations, I should say. And um, yeah, I mean, it's going to be intense. <laughs> it's going to be, oh, and oh, by the way, they will the time frame they they will have to finalize those regulations will actually be shorter than the time frame that the California Attorney General's office had to to do the um, the regulations on the seven topics. So this will all sort of come to pass by um, you know we'll start July of this year. It'll be done by July of next year. They're supposed to have the final regulations done, and then we'll roll that into you know the January um, start date for the CCPA. But then enforcement is delayed as well. So it's very complicated. I know. Apologies for <laughs> for for giving what is intended to be a very uh, not intended to be a very complicated answer. But I think you know to answer your original question, Doug. It's it's you know we are we are we are really behind. I think in the world of, of privacy law, obviously compared to countries like like uh, you know well not countries but you know organizations like the European Union with GDPR, but even countries like you know uh, Brazil who have already rolled out LGPD. Um, this country is in the process of developing those, in my my opinion. We're just not there yet. And, and I mean, I guess that's where I've always confused because, you know, when you look at things like California, <clears throat> now we're kind of, being, I guess, is it, well, maybe just clarify, is it a second iteration of the CCPA with the new law or is it a evolution or like how, how are they positioned together or separately? 
Yeah, so I mean, I just kind of tell the story, right? So uh, I think people know that Alistair McTaggart, a real estate mogul out in California, was the you know the driving factor behind the CCPA, the first one, right? And he did that via a ballot measure, um, and they had the ballot measure ready to go. They went to the legislature, and the legislature said, "Well, if we pass legislation, will you pull back the ballot measure?" Um, and not put it onto the ballot. This is you know a few years ago, right, 2018. And McTaggart agreed. They made some compromises. McTaggart agreed. They staggered the um, the date the CC that was the CCPA, right, the California Consumer Privacy Act. But they pushed off the date in which the CCPA would go into effect because they realized that the bill needed a lot of work. They had literally seven days to draft the CCPA legislation because the deadline for submitting ballot measures was seven days away. And so they had to rush it across the finish line. Uh, but they, they did it and, you know, but they staggered it so that they would have like an 18 month period for, uh, to go back and to, and to work on the bill. And, and it, in fact, it was, it was in such poor condition that as originally passed assembly bill three, uh, three seventy five as originally passed the CCPA, it had things like typos, and like sentences stopped mid-sentence and all those types of things. It was just in bad shape. So they went back in immediately of September of that year through SB 1121, Senate Bill 1121, and fixed a lot of the typos. But then they went about um, you know negotiating, right? And so in the next 18 months, the, the bill was, according to privacy advocates, significantly watered down. You saw things like employee exemptions added. You saw things like business-to-business uh, personal data exempted, all those types of things. Uh, and McTaggart got frustrated with the process by all accounts. And so during the whole time that they were working on amendments and the business community was trying to water down the bill, according to McTaggart, he was working on another ballot measure. And the ballot measure, um, which now, like I said, passed in November the, of 2020, um, is a red line of the CCPA. Right. I mean, literally, it's a red line where, you know, it's, it's intended to strengthen some areas, uh, clarify some areas, uh, create a new California Privacy Protection Agency to enforce the bill. Um, there's some aspects where people could argue that it that it, it it weakens the CCPA. But by and large, I think the prevailing wisdom is it strengthens it. So, yeah. So I think to answer your question, it's the CPRA, which is now the bill. It, it's, it's a red line of the CCPA, but it is a significant red line. Uh, there are things in that bill that just do not exist in the CCPA. You know, one of them is around contracting, right? Those familiar with GDPR will will know that like Article 28 of GDPR requires if you're a controller of data and you use a processor to process data, you've got to have a contract in place. And that contract has to say a bunch of stuff that never existed in the CCPA. Um, there was a one contractual aspect there dealing with service providers that was, you know, a three sentence aspect. But the CPRA, the, the revised uh, bill, the red line bill is going to have a, uh, a much more fleshed out contractual requirement provision. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's a red line, I guess, to answer your question in, in a shorter way. <laughs> yeah, no, and it, it's funny you know, having I – was, I was working with several organizations on their security and privacy programs at the time as we're trying to figure out, okay, what does a CCPA assessment look like? And some of the language would just be – confusing, maybe ambiguous at times, saying, well, what standard should we apply? Um, do we use GDPR as, as a saying, you know, what's what's a processor controller? Um, and, I, you know, I've seen this happen with, uh, you know, even going back to when I was doing stuff in New York City for De- Department of Financial Services with some of their kind of uh, regulations around some of that 
industry's data, it seemed to me, and, and, and maybe this is a, a leading question or correct me if I'm wrong, that a lot of these were put together without maybe getting some of the the people at the table that might be able to clarify the definitions a little bit better. You know, we see some of these terms put into these legislation and then when it's passed and you're out there, you're like, huh, what the heck does this mean? How do I, how do I even put this into my program? Well, yeah, right. I think you hit the nail on the head with, with, op, you know, we, we talk a lot about it. Maybe you do as well, like operationalizing these laws, yep. right. Um, taking these laws and actually applying them to different client bases. And, you know, for people who are familiar with my practice, we represent many, many different types of organizations. We're not just, you know, industry specific. So we take these laws and we try to roll them out on, you know, numerous different types of organizations and it's complicated, right. Um, I think what's making it further complicated and I'm not telling uh, you something you don't already know is when you take something like the the CPRA, the California's you know, new new version of the law, and then you say, okay, we're subject to the CPRA. We're also subject to say GDPR, and we're also subject to say like Virginia's new law, which will come into effect January 2023. And clients look at us and they say, what do we do? What do we do? Which one, right? <laughs> right. I mean, what? And, they, and and I think you know people would like to think that there's sort of a one size fits all approach to these things. And unfortunately, I mean, there, there are some aspects of these laws that have crossed over, um, but there's not, right? And so, sort of teased out, right, is um, California is an opt-out regime in the sense that, like, people can collect information. You have to provide notice of what you're collecting. You can collect the information, and you have the right now to, like, opt out of sales, right? of personal information. And that is defined specific to California law. It's a, it's a very unique definition of sale. Okay, well, you know, is that going to be in the CPRA? It is, yeah, but there's also going to be like an opt-out, a limited opt-out of sensitive personal information, right? Uh, so it's essentially companies can collect sensitive information, uh, which has its own definition. Uh, it's a subset of personal information. And uh, they can use that for certain limited purposes, but if that company strays outside of those that box, then you can opt out of those additional usage, right? Those different purposes that they, the companies use this information. Uh, okay, so let's look at Virginia, right? The law that's going to go into effect. Well, Virginia says that you need consent for the collection of sensitive information. Uh, it's not opt out, it's consent. That's what that law is going to say. Um but it defines sensitive information differently <laughs> than it's defined mm -hmm. in um, than it's defined in in California's law. And GDPR has its own concept. Uh, it's Article Nine, sensitive information definition, different uh, you know different definition as well of sensitive information. Um, you know, there's 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 been like all of them cover like. Uh, geolocation, right? And what's really interesting is like you would look at all the laws and depending upon the definition of geolocation, it may be, you know, all the footage is different, right? Uh, so like depending on where you would be, uh, you know, the, the exact definition of geolocation would be like 1750 feet or like 1850 feet or like 1650 feet, right? It's kind of like, well, for God's sakes, right? What do we do with yeah. this type of stuff? And so, yeah, I mean, you know, when you look at that and to your question, right, is what do you do? What do you do if you're a company in those situations? You want to create like one size fits all approach to privacy law. And there's a lot that you could do there. But even if you wanted to say like, well, let's do the most restrictive, right? Um, given the definition changes, it's really hard to get that yeah. right. Right. I mean, you know, you're, you're sort of get and then you're like, OK, well, what happens when the next state comes on? 
And like Oklahoma was considering a bill, right? And one version of the bill that actually passed the House in Oklahoma, I'm sorry, I think it passed the Senate first. It was, no, I'm sorry, it passed the House. Representative Walkie got it passed the House and it failed in the Senate. But that bill, as originally constructed, was going to be a consent for the collection of all information, right? Straight up consent. Um, and so that was going to make, you know, that was even going beyond GDPR, right? Because people like to think that GDPR is consent-based collection. It is, but there's other aspects like legitimate interest that allow you to collect information. So I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, when you talk about these laws and you mentioned MIDFS, right, about that law as well, I mean, that's an infosec-focused law. And the California law has a little bit of conversation about InfoSec issues, but it's all about privacy. It's about disclosures and collections and transfer of personal information. It's not about securing that personal information, right? Um, Anyway, I'll stop there. I could talk forever. I I, I definitely saw it too when I was doing quite quite a bit of data breach response notification work in my last practice, which was focused on data mining. Um, and so we, you know, we kind of built out this, this engine at special counsel to ingest data, pull out uh, identity and entity information and say, Hey, look, you know, here's, here's the information about this individual. And what I found interesting too, was that, yeah, you know, we would have maybe an organization impacted in Colorado. They, they suffered a data security incident. We're determining what, what the threshold was, you know, whether there was enough, um, defined entities that would meet the requirements, not only in Colorado, but, oh, geez, they were doing business in five other states. You know, then we're looking at, oh, crap, the Dakotas. And then there's there's data birth is in one category and not yeah. in another. And yeah. It was like this patchwork of what is sensitive data it, driven by each different uh, attorney general's office. And that in itself was an expensive and arduous process. Yeah, and that's uh... – I mean, you mentioned date of birth, right? So there's two two states that cover date of birth and data breach notification statutes. And that's kind of what we've been living in now, right, is breach happens, you do a 50-state analysis, right? And there's crossover in a sense that the genesis of all these bills was California's original bill, uh, data breach notification statute. But every legislative session, every year, some state tweaks it. Right. We did it in Colorado back in 2018, where we tweaked the uh, you know, Colorado's breach notification statute. And, you know, you just kind of see these iterations go. And what is a breach in one state is a, is is may not be a breach in another state. Now, to take it even one step further is something I've been thinking a lot about these days. Right. Is and we haven't talked on it yet, but it's it, you look at thresholds on the privacy laws. Right. GDPR doesn't have a threshold. Your, you know, there's Article Three talks about extraterritorial jurisdiction of the law, but by and large, if you're collecting personal data in the EEA, you're subject to GDPR, right? Um, if you're a small business, there might be aspects of the law that doesn't apply to you, in particular, Article Thirty record of processing activities. In this country, we've taken a much different approach to it, and I. I uh, give me a second; it'll all make sense in a minute, right? It's going to be a long explanation, but I think it's worth noting. Is um, in California to be subject to California's law, right? You have to have annual gross revenues of twenty-five million or more, right? All in, not just in California, all in. So you're you're a company that that's got revenue of twenty-five million on a regular basis, or you collect the personal information of fifty thousand or more California residents, or you're a data broker. Look at Virginia's law, right? Virginia's law set doesn't have a monetary threshold behind it. There's no like twenty-five million, right? What they say is you've got to be collecting. Uh, the personal 
data of 100,000 or more Virginia residents, right? But that does not include personal data collected in an employee or a business-to-business context, right? And it also uh, you're also covered if you're a data broker, right? And so to complete the circle on the thought process here is your personal data, right? Not only in a breach notification context, but the value of your personal data is going to be substantially different where you're located in mm-hmm. in the United States, right? Because in some locations, if this personal data is compromised, you get notified of it, right? But then you take this same personal data set and you sit in California and you're like, well, a business that has this data on California residents is going to be required to do X, Y, and Z. But I go to Virginia and because I may not qualify as a business under Virginia law, my personal data lacks any value there, Right. And so it's weird that we are valuing in this country, we, we tend to value personal data, not just by the data set that it is, but by the businesses that hold this information. And by and large, right, startups are excluded from yeah. all of this. Right. And that's really interesting. We work with a lot of startups. What I can tell you is startups do a lot of stuff with data. <laughs> right. They do a ton of stuff with data. And so if you look at it and you're like, okay, my my geolocation, my social security number, my biometric information, right? That immutable stuff, my fingerprints, all those types of things, eye scans, right? That is held by this startup company with limited resources. And that has zero value under the law. That at least, you know, uh, not talking data breach notification statutes, which covers everybody, but like these CCPA Virginia type laws. But that same data held by, say, Amazon has substantial value, right? And ha- and that's a very weird way that we're drawing out privacy law in this country, is to say, like, value has, your data has value based on the entity that holds it, not on the value of the data itself. Yeah, and that's that's where it gets confusing, you know, for for me, not just, I mean, I, I think it's it's part of the the issues that we're facing where the confusion lies is, you know, when I'm advising organizations to say, hey, look, you know, depends where you are, uh, not both geographically, um, but where you are in your growth. And they kind of get this inquisitive look because like, you know, these, again, these thresholds. So it's, it becomes very difficult for small businesses to, I, I think, build programs at time because look, every company wants to grow and get bigger, but it's like all of a sudden it's like where 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 are the gating conditions to say okay now we have to stop and rewrite our security program. Yeah, right. Exactly, and, and you know something we would think about as well with respect to like say Virginia, right? Is you know if there's this consent for processing sensitive data, right? And somebody could come to me and they say, well, Dave, I'm not subject to this law. Well, nobody's subject to it now. It doesn't go into effect till 2023. But like say it's 2023, I'm not subject to this law. Say so that's true, right? Um, but what happens if you grow into it? Right. And what happens if you've collected all the sensitive data and you haven't gotten consent to collect the sensitive data? Right. And the law, the law applies to doesn't this is like GDPR, right? Like, hey, we've got all these data sets, but we haven't collected it using the GDPR ways. Like what happens to these data sets? And that's something I think companies need to wrestle with as well. And I, I think at the end of the day, when we talk with like smaller companies trying to grow up, we we just talk a lot about, and I think this is for every company out there, is you look at any privacy framework that exists, right? The first step of any privacy framework is know your data, yeah. right? Know your data. Uh, what do you collect? Why? Where is it going? Where is it stored? How is it secured, right? It all flows from those types of things. And that is sort of this like come to Jesus moment that the United States is going to have over, I think, the next five to 10 years um, that 
you know, companies are going to have to come to the realization you can't just collect everything. You can't keep it for forever. Um, you need to, you know, have a risk-based approach to, to your privacy program. What's funny, too, is when I've worked with organizations in, in laying out records management programs for data retention, because I've always said, look, you know, the longer you keep on data, the risk stays relatively high. Uh, the value starts dropping to, to possibly zero um, in, in different contexts. And so we say, yeah, but we might need that. You know, we might need this thing seven years from now. I'm like, but what, what's the, how many times a year do you even pull it now? And often you will make say, hey, let's, let's look at your Iron Mountain box pulls. How often are you pulling that data? Oh, all the time. And it's like, you, you do it twice a year. You know, <laughs> it's people in their mind, they're, they're, they're pulling data way more than they, they think they need it. Um, or think that they do and that they really don't need it. Um, and then you start saying, okay, well, why do we get rid of some of the stale data? And all of a sudden there's this, this death-like grip to not do that and say, oh my God, I got to keep everything in my inbox. Go back to them and do a reassessment six months later. Like, actually, this is really good. I can find things now. <laughs> it's like there's, there's, there's also business process value and ability to, to reduce the clutter. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We had, we had one client just sort of tell a story. We had a client about a year ago, we were looking at some of their, their, their marketing data, right? And they were in the insurance business, right? Car insurance. And um, they were keeping, you know, people would show up on the website and you start entering the information. You maybe get a quote on the car, uh, car insurance, uh, provide your email to do that, right? And, um, you know, they, they kept all that information, right? And so we talked with them and I said, well, how long do you think that's viable for, right? Like in the sense of, if I buy a car, I need insurance that day, right? <laughs> like, like this is not like I'm not a prospect three years from now, right? I'm a prospect for a very limited time frame, right? And once that time frame's done, it's done. I'm not going, you know, how, who, do people change car insurance on a regular basis? I don't think so. Maybe some people do, but like they were keeping that information indefinitely, right? And I'm like, what is the business purpose? And it, it, it all rolled up into this concept of CCPA because. You know, if this was a California resident, the California resident could ask, you know, what information do you have on me, right? And I say, well, one way you can avoid this is to not have the information that is of zero value to you. And it seems to me this is zero value. But of course, you take that to the marketing people and they say, oh, we can't get rid of our data, right? Always that, the marketing people. Every single time. <laughs> <laughs> right. We can't possibly let go of this data. You're like, well, why? Right. What? Like, I don't get it, right? They, these people may be on to like their third car from now yeah. based on how long it's you guys are keeping this information, right? Um, so anyway, but but that is, you know, Europe is wrestling with that and has, and they're, 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 they're more advanced on these aspects. I mean, there was, you know, a decision out of France this past uh, summer talking about doc retention, right? And I mean, you can think about, right, like a, a court decision coming down on how long you should retain records is is kind of interesting um, to, to think about in this country. So, and, well, and we will. I mean, yeah. Well, Go ahead. That's, yeah, that's what's leading right into the next part. It's like, you know, does it come to a point where we, we have to have some kind of level of, you know, federal legislation? And, you know, I guess that, that I mean, in itself, we can probably talk for hours. <laughs> and there's yeah. good, and, there's good and bad. I mean, I've looked at things like HIPAA, where let's not forget HIPAA goes back to the mid '90s, um, and they had to do revisions in the early 2000s just to add some teeth to it to make it enforceable because there have been privacy laws ish, and even though there was a weird aspect of billing on that that went into healthcare data, but you know, it, it's been around for a while, and it, it took a long time for it to really get enforcement. Does it take us as a nation to pass? federal law and make it enforceable, which also seem like two big challenges in their, their own rights. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I mean, this is this is the central issue in U.S. privacy law right now. Right? Is I, I think as people who are in, in my position or who think a lot about these issues, we think the end game is federal privacy legislation, right? Um, but what we don't know is, are we six months away from that? Are we six years away from that? Are we 15 years away from that? That's what we don't quite know. And so we throw a lot of like examples out there, right? And, you know, so the, the people who don't think will get federal privacy legislation point to, as we talked about before, point to the 50 state breach notification statutes, right? And, you know, we've had breaches in this country that have affected, you know, substantial portions of the population, right? Hundreds of millions of people. And we haven't gotten a federal breach notification statute out of that, right? And so these state breach notification laws just just plot along and, you know, we've never gotten federal privacy legislation or federal breach notification legislation. And so if you look at that, you'd say, okay, where do we sit as a country right now? Well, April, 2021, we sit here with this, the California has a law, Virginia passed a law. Some other states are considering legislation. We'll see if anybody passes something this legislative cycle. Okay. Is there a groundswell for federal privacy legislation? (laughs) Uh, I mean, you know, there's we, you know, people talk about like the patchwork of of privacy laws. Okay, we've got two, you know, two two state privacy laws. That's not much of a of a patchwork. But you know, the prevailing wisdom is we're at the beginning, right? And I always tell people like, this is how I'm going to put my kids through college, right? We're only at the beginning right now, and so we're, we will have more state level privacy legislation. I I think if I, if I had to bet, I'd say. You know, we're still a few years away from realistic chances of federal privacy legislation, although I've read a ton of stuff that people think that we are closer on federal than than we have been um, in, in many years. We have single party control in the, on the federal government. And that's an interesting thing because you can look at that and you can say, OK, we have single party democratic control. Well, so does the state of Washington. Have single party democratic control, and they have not been able to pass the Washington Privacy Act for the past three years, right? You say, okay, well, what what is it that holds it up? Well, what holds it up is enforcement, and that's what you mentioned before, right? And that's the the two big issues that the federal government would need to get through to be able to pass federal privacy legislation is preemption and enforcement. The parties largely agree on other stuff or they could reach agreement, right? Because you have to understand now, like the Democrats want privacy legislation for their own purposes. The Republicans and and you know, look at Florida, right, which Republican government that they're pushing through privacy legislation, we'll see if it passes. They want privacy legislation to hurt tech companies because they don't like tech companies right now because of the election, right? And it's weird. It's very weird, but like Democrats and Republicans are are lining up on these issues. Uh, but what they can't quite get across the finish line is would you have a private right of action for enforcement or would it be something like FTC enforcement or state attorney general enforcement? That's that's held up the Washington Privacy Act. It tends to hold up a lot of privacy laws. And the other thing is preemption, right? Is would a federal law preempt stronger state laws? Um, GLBA, Graham Leach Bliley Act, the financial sector, does not preempt stronger state laws. So California has gone further and they've enacted the California Financial Information Privacy Act, which has further restrictions there. Um, but those are the two big issues. And you know, the parties have not been able to reach agreement on those. And there are very, very strong feelings on the state level and on a federal level as well. And I think if you look at it, I think I, I've said it in other circles, I've said, you know, it may be okay that 
you know, we let the states work out some of these issues, right? Maybe a state will pass a prior right of action. Maybe, a, you know, we're going to have, you know, an agency in California that's going to have enforcement authority. Maybe our system of government will just work the way it's supposed to work and we'll see what works on a state level and we'll roll it up in a federal level, mm. right? Um, and, you know, we haven't mentioned as well, not to kind of just keep on going on, but we haven't mentioned just how much tech is changing right now. Um, the big bugaboo on CCPA is, you know, the use of third-party advertising cookies, right? Well, Google is trying to phase those out with Flow C right now. And so, uh, you know, as quickly as these, we, these laws are, are rolling out, they are, you know, they can become antiquated just as quickly. And so they have to be principle-based and be able to be applied to different and emerging technologies because, gosh, I mean, we can't possibly comprehend what's going to be in here in the next 10 years. Could we comprehend that our lives will be run by Zoom and Microsoft Teams, you know, 18 <laughs> months than, ago? Yeah, not only <laughs> took two months. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, like, it's just, you know, things change so rapidly. People invent stuff, different platforms come about. So anyway. I, I, as you can tell, I can get started and talk forever about privacy law. So it's best if I just pause. Well, every no, so it's, often. It's, it's, it's an, I mean, you, you keep, I'm, I'm also leading the horse of water a little bit and you're, you're, you're drinking. So it's perfect. But you know, the one thing that I, it's on my list that I, I do want to define a little bit, cause I think it gets, I come from a very litigation heavy background in tech and security in a weird background, but, um, you know, I've testified number. So I, I know the litigation world really well. And I've always said, you know, there's going to be a point when there's going to be uh, enforcement by litigation. And, you know, and I think, you know, at least in my limited, you know, knowledge of the law, I mean, that's what we talk about at a private right of action is it's not necessarily coming from a government entity, but it allows a constituent base to go say, hey, look, we're going to, we're going to get a class action lawsuit because, you know, you, Doug Brush, Inc., linked, you know, lost 35, 350 million, you know, United States people's records. Is, is that basically the, the gist of it where people can actually sue an organization? Yeah, and you got it right. And and I think the prime example of that right now is is what's happening in Illinois with the Biometric Information Privacy Act, right? So there in Illinois, if if people don't know this already, you should. Um, there's a law that went on the books, I think, 09 went onto the books and it was largely ignored for a number of years. And then, you know, plaintiff's lawyers woke up and they realized, hey, we have this law that says that you need to have consent and disclosures and retention schedules around the collection of biometric information. And if you don't do that, then you can be sued as a company for statutory damages. So the law says how much you'd be uh, sued for in the thousands of dollars per violation, right? And so we now get, my Illinois litigators tell me, we get um, you know dozens of lawsuits filed every week where um, you know people are alleging primarily against employers um, that there's been a collection of biometric information without authorization and consent, right, from employees. Um, and there have been, you know, Facebook got dinged for, they, I think they reached a settlement for $650 million, right, because of the use of tagging in, in on Facebook's platform, right, like the, the platform recognized um, uh, uh, based on facial recognition, the person in the photo, right? Hey, tag your your mother or something like that with a name. Um, but this is really against like, those are the high water marks uh, for litigation. But but these these cases are are ubiquitous out there, and so that is enforcement by by litigation, and that's what the privacy advocates would like to see on things like the CCPA. Now the devil becomes in the details, right? Because right now we do have 
you know, we, we do have the ability in this country to file lawsuits over data breaches, right? You've seen it at Target and Home Depot and all these types of cases where people are sued for data breaches. They can be like negligence causes of action. What we talk about with these CCPA type laws that are they're developing right now is could a consumer go in and say something like, uh, you company, I have the right under the CCPA for you to turn over to me all of my information that you have, right? And if that company says, hey, we believe there's an exemption in place, could the consumer then sue that organization, right? Right now under California law, uh, they would have to go to the AG's office and complain to the AG's office and the AG's office would have to take some sort of action there. Um, but as you can imagine, you know, and it wouldn't just be like right to access stuff, it'd be everything, right? In, in theory, it could be anything under the law. Um, hey, your disclosures, your online disclosures were inaccurate. We found some sort of inaccuracy here. You actually collect social security numbers and you don't say that in your disclosures. Um, and so that that's sort of the, you know, the the business uh, community would say that that's, that's a big risk, right? If we get something that's, you know, off in our privacy policy or we don't respond appropriately according to the the potential plaintiff in a data subject access request or consumer request, we get a class action lawsuit. And you know that is that the question is, does that further privacy law in this country? Privacy advocates would say yes, and businesses would say no. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's and that's but yeah, to your point, you, you hit the nail on the head with that. Yeah, and it's funny, I mean it, it all comes down to two where it, it at times and it it feels like we're treating a lot of the symptoms instead of root cause. And, you know, we go back to what we're trying to talk about data retention and some of the companies, you know, I always ask, you know, should, you know, just because you can, should you be collecting this data? Um, and the general attitude in the United States is, well, yeah, sure we can. We can do whatever the hell we want. Um, and that goes for employers, too. You know, people don't realize, hey, you know, when you use company-issued devices, you're, you're giving up some of your rights and freedoms. And, you know, we all bang our fists on our chest about America great and freedoms and all this. And then I, I look at some of the things in, in Europe when I've done litigation over there and it's like, holy cow, you can't do this stuff in Europe, even on a corporate network. And they're like, no, these people have rights <laughs> that supersede the corporate rights. And it's this idea that it's, it's interesting. And we certainly, you know, we touched on that, the, the fact that, you know, at least the tech companies have had their fingers on the Virginia law, you know, particularly uh, Amazon and Microsoft. It was like this idea that you have to opt out of everything as opposed to, can you get my consent before you take my data? Is it also just a cultural thing? And is there ever a, a chance that we'll ever get over that hurdle? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's right. So if you look at, you know, you, you paint broad strokes, right? You would say that GDPR is opt-in. There's a lot of, caveats there, but GDPR is opt-in and California is opt-out regimes, right? There are people who advocate for both, who are privacy advocates that advocate mm. for both as well, right? I mean, some people say GDPR doesn't work too well, right? Um, from an opt-in standpoint. And other people would say California is rubbish because we have to put the impetus on the consumer to do everything as opposed to the business, yeah. right? Um one aspect, though, I think your your question was sort of touching on is like this aspect of like privacy by design, right? Which is, you know, as a company, if you can get in on the ground level, and I love doing this with companies, right? I, I love like when they bring products to us or, you know, marketing plans that they're going to roll out and we get to talk with them about like vetting this on the, on upfront, right? Because we've been able to take like certain client projects and, and make them, um, you know, incredibly less risky, by just talking through about what data they need to collect and why, 
right? Um, we mentioned breach notification statutes. I had one client in particular last year where we went through their entire data collection. We were like, hey, if you guys get breached, you're not going to have a notification obligation because we've been able to insulate you yeah. from everything, right? Using vendors and not collecting certain personal information. Like there's a ton of, 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 of benefit to doing that, but without that enforcement mechanism in the country, then, you know, people say, well, because pri- I always tell people that like, privacy is risk, right? It was going to cost me a million dollars to fix this problem, but the problem is only a thousand dollar issue. Well, you know, we'll just wait until we have to pay the thousand dollars. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's, yeah, it is. It's just interesting. This, this idea too, because I, I I've worked for it too, where it's like, um, you know, I've seen them. It was funny. Just so over the COVID thing, when some of the forms started coming out, even here in Colorado with some of the, uh, again, good intentions, people putting out, Hey, sign up for notification forms. And I looked at one of the major healthcare payers in the, in the country, I'd ping somebody kind of offline. I was like, Hey, you know, you guys are taking in birth date on this They're like yeah i'm like this form doesn't need like you don't need that for for no i mean obviously you're trying to maybe try to prevent like a 16 you know somebody under the age of that's you know uh, able to get the vaccine now but don't collect that data if you don't have to you're just setting yourself up for for future failure if you don't need it yeah so i mean as as we kind of tie this together too you know what what is the the current state of colorado you know we have really obviously a very strong colorado-based you know uh set of listeners are there things happening now is there things that if you do want to get more active in seeing things be represented, whether you're a business or an individual, are there you know legislators or, or agencies within the Colorado government that are proactive about this that's worth talking to and being involved or following? Yeah, well, I think the big ticket item, right, is for for those maybe who are unfamiliar, there there was a bill proposed in the Senate that was uh, very similar to the Virginia bill. Right. Um, the the bill number is SB 21-190. Um, so that was proposed. It hasn't gone anywhere. My understanding is that it's done for the year. It didn't get out of committee uh, when it needed to get out of committee. Now, I will say, you know, one of the things I've learned by watching state legislatures for the past three plus years is, you know, these rules seem to be kind of optional sometimes. Um, you know, things that you think are dead somehow come to life immediately. Uh, but there hasn't been any movement on that bill since it's been proposed. But I think, you know, your listeners would certainly be interested in that. Um, to, and this was, we've heard for the past two years, we've heard that, you know, legislation would be proposed in this state dealing with like CCPA type legislation uh, and has never come to pass. Um, so there was something proposed this year. And I, I think, you know, next year we'll see what happens then, uh, you know, assuming nothing dramatic happens between now and then. Um, and so, yeah, I think that would be the big ticket item. Obviously, Colorado already has its breach notification statute was last amended in 2018. Um, it also has an information security statute that went into effect at the same time. So that's the duty to implement and maintain reasonable security procedures. And so I'm not sure if I hit all the topics on on your question. Were you asking more about like groups and stuff well, like actually, that? I just want to pause right there. There's actually the reasonableness test. And, and I, in, in maybe your your advice on this to, to organizations, too, is that a lot of organizations say, well, you know, I can't I can't do this. It's never going to be perfect. I'm like, you, nobody said perfect. It said reasonable. Show that you're trying something. There's enough standards out there, whether it's NIST CSF and other risk management frameworks. Put something up. Say, hey, look, we're trying. Yeah, and I mean, to the point, right? So there's, there's, you know, these 
these other statutes, we haven't talked about them too much. I think there's about, I don't know what the number is now, 25 states that have statutes on the books that say entities have a duty to implement and maintain reasonable security procedures. And that's what Colorado states, right? There is a subset of states like Massachusetts and Alabama that are more prescriptive yeah. and actually say exactly what it is that you need to do, right? But to the point, and so, and, and, I haven't mentioned it before, but a little bit of background. When in 2018, when this was happening, I I had helped the the uh, AG's office at the time, um, like doing some of the background research on these statutes, right? And so I had a lot of knowledge about what was going on. And the thought process was, um, hey, we can make a prescriptive statute, but tech is going to change so rapidly that we're worried that the minute that we put something on on paper, it's going to be outdated, right? And so, you know, the idea was to keep it broader, to, to, to keep pace with the changing, with changing tech. Uh, but to your point, though, they were very cognizant of the fact that, like, the FTC has put out guidance. You have cybersecurity frameworks that are out there. And so, yeah, right? I mean, at the end of the day, it, it becomes a negligence standard. You're going to have breaches. Those are going to happen. The question is going to be on the back end is, what did you do to prevent it? Right. And if you can sit there and say, hey, we were ISO certified, if we were, you know, we, we ran after this, we ran after that, then that's going to look a heck of a lot different to the AG's office, Colorado AG's office, who has enforcement authority. And if you have nothing, I've, I've had clients get those requests from the AG's office in Colorado, yeah. right, where they say, you know, what were your reasonable security measures in place to prevent this from happening? And if the answer is, we don't know. That's a much different answer than here is the 100-page document that we had in place, and yeah, we missed something, but we were trying really stinking hard, right? I mean, just put yourself in a position of attorney general's office. Which entity do you think they're going to find more fault with, right? Yeah. Well, I've said that in enforcement for years. It's like if if, if a regulator, somebody comes in and asks to see your privacy policies, and, you, and you're struggling to find anything about records management policies – they're going to camp out for a little longer. If you say, look, it's a little dated, it's not perfect, but here it is on the tip of your fingers, it's it's a much better story to tell. <laughs> yeah, I mean, gosh, be, be worried about the fact that like, oh gosh, it's been it's it's been a nine months since we looked at this document as opposed to the entity that says like, yeah, I mean, we get entities come to us and are like, you know, what's an instant response plan? And you're like, well, <laughs> listen, man, we're not going to be able to do much help for you guys here, yeah. right? And let's let's go try to figure out mitigation strategy at this point in time, you know? So uh, the last part of my question I had on, on before where it was a, a bit of a compound question, sorry, counselor, but it was, uh, you know, are there, are there things that as, as an individual in Colorado, are there state agencies I can get involved with or groups maybe that are advocating for some of these things so I can have better situational awareness as a constituent in my state of saying, hey, I want to be involved in these issues, either, you know, again, whether I'm a small business or an individual to make sure it's shaped in something I care about. Yeah, I'd say, you know, in the privacy sphere, right, the, the, the big uh, the, the big mover and shaker in the privacy sphere is the IAPP, International Association of Privacy Professionals. So they have uh, local uh, chapters, you know, one in Denver uh, in particular. They're called Knowledge Nets. Um, and so if you're interested in privacy law, um, that, that would be the one to, you know, go join. And, you know, listen, COVID's impacted everything, right? They don't, the, the IAPP, the local chapters are trying to put together programs. I did one uh, a month or so ago, did a program for the, the local IAPP one on state privacy law um, developments. Uh, but that would be your big, t- you know, your, your big organization to go talk to. There's other ones as well in the InfoSec ones. I imagine your listeners are very familiar with like the information security groups that are around. But as far as privacy goes, there's 
goes, there's that one. There's also a um, organization called OneTrust that's a vendor uh, that provides a lot of privacy tech solutions. They're a SaaS company and they have local chapters. I actually ended up um, the chapter chair for the one in Denver. And so we're trying to put together programs as well that just you know keep people updated, right? about these things. And, um, you know, and I, I always tell people like a shameless plug uh, for myself is, you know, I, I've got a blog, it's called bitebacklaw.com, B-Y-T-E backlaw.com. And so we're always pushing out privacy information, um, you know, tracking these things. And we've been doing every week, we've been doing an update on the status of proposed state CCPA like privacy legislation. Um, just released one Yesterday, talking about a new bill proposed in Pennsylvania, one in North Carolina, and updating people. So, yeah, I think those would be the organizations you you kind of want to look at. Yeah, and I, I would second the votes on those. IAPP, I've had the chance to speak at a number of their chapters across the country, and it's always it's always good to kind of cross train uh, data privacy, compliance, and security. So, I, I highly recommend people look into these organizations and, and kind of step outside your your day to day things that you do in our world. Yeah, great. All right. Well, David, thank you so much for your time today. And uh, we'll definitely make sure that I'll put the, make sure everybody gets the, uh, the show notes of where they can find your, definitely your blog. I highly recommend it. And uh, thanks again for keeping us updated. And hopefully it'll be uh, sooner rather than later before we can uh, update on, on where these things are going uh, the next time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. We really appreciate it. Learn more about the Colorado security scene at colorado-security.com, where you can see information about local security groups, a calendar of upcoming security events, and learn more about Colorado equals security. Reach out to Alex and Rob by emailing info at colorado-security.com. Until next time, remember, Colorado equals security.